Now let's cross live to Shane McElhatton, who's at the National Concert Hall. Thanks, Gavin. Uh, once again, in our series of commemorations of the centenaries of the key events, the struggle for independence, we are where it all happened. This time we're in the National Concert Hall, formerly the main building of University College Dublin, which provided the setting for the debates on the Anglo-Irish Treaty, debates that 100 years ago today culminated in unprecedented scenes of emotion and anger here as the treaty was ratified by the tiniest of margins, 64 votes to 57. Students of parliamentary mathematics will see that just four TDs changing their minds would have seen the treaty rejected. In this building, a few yards from where we are sitting, the Republican movement was irrevocably split in the moments after the vote. Eamon de Valera resigned as President of the Republic, a republic now, as he and his supporters saw it, consigned to oblivion. He was so overcome by the enormity of the moment, he actually broke down in tears while trying to have the last word. He left the chamber, followed by all the TDs who voted against the treaty. Walking, He would have walked past us down the stairs here, leaving Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith to pick up the reins of government. Within six months, the fledging state would be fighting for its survival in civil war. I'm joined here in the National Concert Hall by historian Dr Jennifer Redmond, Assistant Professor of 20th Century Irish History at Maynooth University, and by Michal O'Fahertig, who, along with Liam Weeks, has edited and authored two recent important books on the treaty, The Treaty and Birth of a State. Apparently, we've been having listeners coming in asking us the names. It's The Treaty and Birth of a State. Uh, Michal, um, could you set the scene for us um, in the... the the lead-up to the actual debates. Yes, uh, so Shane, everything had happened with incredible haste, considering that we as a nation have been waiting for the better part of eight centuries for independence. The final act passed through very, very, very quickly. You could even argue with indecent haste. The negotiations themselves began on the 11th of October. They were concluded on the 6th of December. Then we had, between that point and the 7th of January, we had 15 days of debate, 440,000 words spoken, and then everything was done and dusted on this epoch of Irish history. Jennifer, what was the mood like um, as the debate began? Because we could, if we looked out the doors here, we would have seen crowds of people every day hanging on every word. Yes, um, obviously it's an understatement to say it was tense. Uh, the sense of anticipation, the sense of dread, I would say, from some quarters who had experienced two years of terror, violence, um, their homes disturbed. The crowds pictured uh, in our wonderful pictures that we have from the era show um, children in the audience, which I think is remarkable. Uh, they're not even listening to the debates. They're outside the debates. They just are there uh, I guess as as future citizens, there had been a stress actually in the revolutionary period on youth as future citizens. So I guess they were more politically knowledgeable perhaps than uh, other generations. Obviously, though, I think it's really important to stress that whenever anybody came out, people were hanging for any kind of word or update that they could get because this meant something to everybody, no matter what side you were on of the treaty. Michal, what was at stake if the treaty had been voted down? Because there is the... Um, when, when the signers of the treaty were pressed, why did you sign it? Well, it was war in three days if we didn't. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible for us to know, obviously, but let's have a look at the circumstances. 
there was every possibility that there would be a median terrible war, as Lloyd George had promised. The British had a huge military capacity, needless to say. They were on a war footing. That was their default position. And the, the, the IRA was in a powerless state, as it itself admitted. So people like Liam Lynch, uh, key figures within the IRA, uh, acknowledged that they just didn't have the wherewithal to go to war with the British again. That said, personally, it might well have been worth calling Britain's bluff in this respect. Britain had gone to the negotiating table because of international pressure on it. There had been an outcry, especially in the United States, about the behaviour of the Crown forces, and moral pressure had been brought to bear on Britain to negotiate with Sinn Féin. If Britain were to go back to war, they would have to pursue an even more brutal conflict. This had been... um, this had been said by uh, Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson that they would have to be given their head this time around if they were to rout the IRA. If they were to do that, surely that would have brought more international opprobrium on Britain uh, and it wouldn't have been tenable for them to, to pursue such a conflict. We know from latter wars as well, such as the Vietnam War, that no matter how big an army you have, how extensive your resources are, it's almost impossible to rout uh, a guerrilla army. So it, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting what-if in history, uh, the anti-treatyites possibly had a point that Britain's bluff should have been called. Yeah, Mary McSwiney called uh, Lloyd George an unscrupulous trickster as, as part of the debates, so perhaps they could have tested the metal, but with one rifle for every 50 men, I think it was. Uh, Sean, McCall, uh, Sean Yeah, yep. I can see the, the worry. Um, Jennifer, if you, can you say, sum up the arguments for and against mm. The, the, the pro-treaty seeing this as the best chance yeah. for real independence. Yeah, um, so you have to look at this treaty in the context of how other nations controlled, governed, associated with the British Empire were um, faring at the time. And it was a, a good bit of um, independence. It's also a lot more than had been promised in the Home Rule um, Act. If you look at that, um, the British government retained a lot of control over the architecture. And it wasn't just nominal or um, uh, small things. There was still a lot of power invested in um, the British architecture of control there. So it was progress from that. Um, It allowed us... I do come down on the side of Collins, the freedom to achieve freedom. It allowed us the steps to put into place to create uh, an independent voice, it didn't allow us freedom in things like foreign policy. I think we're going to get into that a little bit more later. Um, you would have to acknowledge the issue hangs on the republic. It is not a republic. And that is the thing that the debates come down to. And probably 400,000 of those words of 440 come down to that. Michal, so what, what was the, um, the motivation for the anti-treaty TDs. Yeah, just as Jennifer said, the big issue was the Republic, the surrender of the Republic. So these men and women had been campaigning, had been fighting for the recognition of the Irish Republic as proclaimed in 1916. That was, and we can't deny this, fundamentally withheld by the British. So if you look at the debates, they're dominated by that single issue. Partition, for instance, hardly features at all. We have 101 mentions of Ulster. We have 570 mentions of the Oath of Allegiance, which, of course, was the manifestation of this ongoing constitutional link to Britain. And 
It would be very easy for us to um, sit in judgment of the anti-treatyites making such a, a, a big deal of this because to us it, it just seems like a, you know, a fallout over a formula. As Jennifer rightly says, and I endorse everything that she says, the treaty had given us the substance of independence, but we can say that nonetheless with, with the benefit of, the, of hindsight. Uh, let us not forget that these men and women had, for the most part, taken an oath to uphold the Republic. 72% of the 121 TDs who voted on the treaty were card-carrying members of the IRA. Therefore, they had already sworn an oath, and that oath was to the Irish Republic. So to, to back out of this oath was, was a, huge, a huge ask of them uh, to do. What happened in the famous Christmas recess in terms of the pressure the TDs came under? So uh, they were told not to talk about this or to downplay this or to sidestep or evade, I think, in many circumstances. But it's very clear from the record because people come back and say, I have talked to such and such a town. Um, Cork is one of them, which is an interesting example because Collins mentions this. But of course, we know the IRA and Cork had a different line on, on things mostly. Um, they came, they were interacting with their constituents um, and I think for many of them, they came away thinking, yes, people want peace. But what a lot of the anti-treaty uh, side said, yes, people want peace, but they don't want this treaty. How surprised should we be, Michal, at how close the vote was, considering the pressure on all the TDs from constituents, from, par from Sinn Féin clubs, from um, the church, the media, everywhere they turned, they were all under the same pressure and yet there was no landslide. Yeah, I, I'd reiterate what I said earlier, Shane. Uh, the fact was that these were men and women who had pledged to a singular cause, the recognition of a fully sovereign, independent, 32-county Irish Republic. So in many ways, uh, what the mood of the country was, was in a sense immaterial. Now that is to, to portray them as being anti-democratic. But let us not forget that there hadn't yet been a plebiscite on this, that the June 22 election hadn't taken place. So their mandate was actually for the upholding of the 32-county fully sovereign independent Irish Republic. So in many ways it would have been remarkable if there wasn't a narrow vote. Jennifer, uh why, why did um, the pressure, why, why didn't it work on them? Um, Michal has alluded to the reasons, but it still, it still um, strikes us as why on earth um, so many of them stood up and resisted the pressure. Um, I think if you look at the language of the debates, the word honour comes up. You probably have a, a stat on this, but over and over again, and people understand it in, in two ways, their own sense of honour for that previous uh, pledge to the Republic and to honour those who died and weren't there to speak for themselves. That is taken very seriously by people. If you want to develop that point um, in terms of the, what they felt that mm. the, to vote for the treaty was going to give up. Mm. So it's, it's sovereignty, isn't it? And the, the very first words, I mean, the issue of the oath is, is over and over again, as you've mentioned, hundreds of mentions, but it, it's very important to people at the time because uh, people are saying, the anti-treaty side are saying, it doesn't matter that the first pledge is to the constitution of the Irish Free State because that has been put in place by the British. That's not our conception of our country. What matters is in document two, where uh, de Vlaer expresses it as 
the sovereignty is with the people. The document number two, and, I, and am I right in saying, Michal, that that was Michael Collins's derogatory reference, document number two, or was that an official title for the for what De Valera was putting forward? Oh, it was just a, d- a default name, yeah. Um, so with document number two, we have something incredibly interesting. So what De Valera was, he was proposing an alternative to the treaty with this, and a large um, proportion of the debates was taken up with the discussion over document number two. So I'll do my best to, to summarise what document number two represented. So it all comes down to sovereignty, as Jennifer said, and under the treaty, we would be an independent country, but we would be part of the British Empire. What doc- how document number two differed was that it stated we would be an independent country linked to the British Empire, but not within it. So it was very much, uh, you know, a mathematical formulation by a man, De Valera, who was, by background, a mathematician. Um, it's interesting in the sense that it couldn't have flown at the time, okay? Uh, the fact was that as far as the British were concerned, there was one red line, much more so than, than Northern Ireland, and that red line was the integrity of crown and empire. So they could not conceive of an independent Ireland in parallel with the British Empire. It didn't matter how closely it was linked to it. But um, as British historians, as you've told me, uh, Shane, have recently been putting forward. This in many ways anticipated India as a republic within the Commonwealth today, but that was several decades later when the Commonwealth has superseded the empire and it was a much uh, looser uh, looser uh, arrangement. Um, but again, going back to the time itself, and you know, document number two is easy to deride because it was fantastical from, uh, from a British point of view, and it's important to say that I cannot imagine that anti-treaty Republicans would have had much love for it either because although it preserved the Republic, it was still linking us explicitly, constitutionally, to the British Empire. But it was de Valera's attempt to find a genuine compromise. He felt that the treaty was too much of a concession. This was his way of drawing it back to, you know, to the middle position, to a compromise position. Mm. Jennifer, do you think there was any chance? Michael Collins said you wouldn't even get in the door with the British government talk about this. No, you wouldn't. And uh, perhaps some might su- suggest that's why De Valera didn't go in the door, um, because if these were his ideas and he knew it might boil down to this kind of compromise, he wasn't going to reveal that uh, straight away. And I've even seen some historians say that um, that was the reason someone like Mary McSwiney wasn't uh, sent over, because the negotiations would have broken down within 10 minutes, uh, because she had her own red line and uh, wouldn't have uh, looked like this, although she is said to have supported uh, this document number two. I mean, the fact that it just begins talking about uh, that judicial authority of Ireland shall be derived solely from the people of Ireland, that is an absolute snub to the gang. And it's, there's no way around it. There's no monarchy in this document, so it, it wouldn't have passed. There are some really interesting parts to it, though. I got quite into it this week, looking back at it. Um, I mean, as you said, uh, Michal, the it, the kind of you called it a, a magic formula or a mathic, mathematical formula. I might say it's a sleight of hand to say we're associated with you, but we're not of you. And that's actually what has happened. Uh, the Irish in Britain have been uh, given a special status in Britain. They have all the rights of citizens without having to be citizens. That was as a result of our declaration of, of Republic. And that has actually protected them uh, from the vagaries of Brexit. So it, it is a, an interesting uh, document with foresight. 
Uh, one of the other things I think is interesting is that uh, de Valera, his legacy has become very associated with neutrality in the Second World War, but this document actually completely gives up neutrality. Uh, we are willing to cooperate in wartime. Um, and I think some of those things might be forgotten in the issue of the oath and the formulation of, of sovereignty. Yeah, that's de Valera very much putting himself in the shoes of the British there, it must be acknowledged, because they were obsessed with geopolitics um, you know, then even more so than now. And one of their really big worries was that an independent Ireland of, of whatever form would be some kind of a rogue nation that would itself be hostile to Britain's interests or would be, moreover, uh, a staging post. Um, you know, we talk about the British not having a feel for history in the way that we do, but one thing that they always thought about when they thought of Ireland was that this was the place that was seen by their traditional enemies, initially France and Spain and subsequently Germany, as, as the place from which Britain could be attacked. So de Valera apprehended that, and by giving guarantees on defence within document number two, um, he showed himself to be very savvy. I mean, so sometimes the discussion on Ireland's um, possible status as a staging point um, verged on surreal, where mm -hmm. Lloyd George was saying to Collins, you won't be building submarines. Yeah. Uh, who on earth in Ireland was going to think about building submarines? But the, as you say, the British were obsessed with leaving a vacuum that would be filled by a bad actor in their in, the, in their in their words yeah curiously on that one uh, and just to say by the way it was an irishman of course who invented the submarine and um, but uh, we we've never actually commissioned any ourselves uh, just on that point though it is interesting to note that um <laughs> having been so concerned with defense during the negotiations and, and immediately thereafter uh, interestingly the british because probably because they were in such a powerless financial state following the First World War. They were massively in debt. Their industrial revolution had, had come to an end, and they owed huge quantities of money to the United States uh, on foot of, of the First World War. So they, they did actually leave us to our own devices in, in, in terms of defense. So it was actually a, there was a lot of talk about a lot of consideration of defense. When it came to it, we actually had a huge amount of, of control over defense. And also what I think is really interesting, too, is that we effectively had control over our foreign policy as well. So on the treaty, um, if we look at the first few articles, they are, um, they are making um, the precedent for Irish independence, Canada. And at this point in time, it's very important to state that Canada was almost not just entirely politically independent, but it almost had entire sovereignty as well. If we look at the Paris Peace Conference following the First World War, uh, which began in 1919 in Versailles, Canada not only you know, sat alongside Britain as a dominion of the British Empire, it actually sat alongside the British Empire as, as a co-equal partner. Now, that was only a de facto position, uh, but nonetheless, that precedent had been established. And this meant that when Ireland took its bow as the Irish Free State, as a dominion, uh, we, in a sense, had document number two. Um, we had a, a, an external association uh, arrangement in place. The problem was that this was only de facto, it wasn't de jure. Um, and if that had been you know, explicitly stated in the treaty as de jure, that we would have co-equal status with the British Empire, then potentially that might have diffused uh, a lot of the strong feelings within the Dáil Chamber and possibly would have swung at least four decisive votes in favour uh, of, or sorry, would have even you know, copper-fastened the, the, the majority for the treaty in the Dáil. Mm -hmm. Michael Collins said... Um some weeks before his death, that he felt that document number two was full of traps, you know, in terms of the um, 
the commitments on... Um, he said that it was, it was worded in such a way that uh, it would allow the British in to interfere. So uh, document number two, a flawed but fascinating experiment. Yeah, I mean, uh, Collins could interpret it like that. Others could say the opposite, really. The language is vague enough. It's very vague on... Well, it doesn't even say Northern Ireland, North East Ulster. That's a very... The language is so important that the, the, the symbolism of the words is carefully chosen. I, I think it is a very interesting document. It's worthy of consideration. There is much uh, crossover between it and the treaty itself, which I know is a contested uh, point at the time of the debates, but it's true. Um, I mean, interestingly, um, the, the issue of, of, say, payment of the RIC and the auxiliaries, that was proposed in the treaty, and it's, it obviously is maintained in document number two that they were not going to pay for the war of independence and the war on terror against Ireland, as many of them would have said it. So, yeah, I, I find it fascinating, personally. One of the, um, the striking aspects of the, the scenes here in the, in, the, in, in the immediate aftermath of the vote and remarks by uh, IRA officers subsequently um, would indicate a worrying attitude towards democracy. You could argue that the, the walkout itself, they would have walked down these stairs past us here mm-hmm. and at the door, um, was anti-democratic because he was refusing to accept the vote. And then remarks by senior IRA officers who were against the treaty, um, seemingly treating with contempt the popular will and the fact that... Uh, the vote had taken place at all. Yeah, um, and of course many uh, political commentators and historians have made the point that the anti-treatyites um, you know, were in a sense fascistic in ignoring the popular will. But again, I would say that we haven't had that effective plebiscite, that vicarious plebiscite on the treaty, the June 1922 election that had not taken place at this point. And it's important to state also that De Valera used very democratic language um, in the course of the debates. He talked about the Irish people having established the Irish Republic and only the Irish people could disestablish it, which indicated that, you know, even though the mood was against the anti-treaty position, that he, as the leader of the anti-treatyites, would have gone to the people. And I assume that because, you know, De Valera was effectively a professional politician at this stage, he had extensive experience on the hostings, uh, he had toured the United States to great acclaim, he was probably confident that he might be able to persuade the people if he got out of the doll and got into the country and, and campaigned for the treaty. It's also very important to say, and this is not a pedantic point, but we talk about the doll as having ratified the treaty. That's erroneous. The doll did not ratify the treaty. The treaty could only be ratified really by the British. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say the centre of gravity really rested still with them. So it wouldn't be until it passed through the uh, Houses of Parliament, Westminster, that we could say that the treaty was ratified. So all the doll had done was approve it. So on that basis, um, it certainly it certainly takes the the attitude treatyites a little bit out of the dock uh, when they're accused of being anti-democratic. Well, lots of people, though, are claiming to speak on behalf of the people um, in the dull debates, and um, I just wanted to bring up the issue of women TDs there, because they very strongly said we are speaking for the women of Ireland, and Coming Amon was, I think, the first organisation to vote against the treaty. And let it be put on the record, it would, it, without Coming Amon, there would have been no war. Exactly. There would not have been, uh, the IRA could not have stayed in the field without Coming Amon. Coming Amon was not a fan club, oh, it yes. was part of the 
Yes, struggling. there were 90,000 combatants during the War of Independence and 20,000 of those were in common demand. Exactly. So uh, I feel that uh, their voice was significant, but I don't know if any of them, women or any of the other TDs, without this plebiscite having happened, can really say they were speaking exactly for the people of Ireland. Uh, they were reflecting uh, things that they had heard or votes that they had got in the past, but not necessarily the current position. Michal, um do you want to drill into the, um, the breakdown of the vote? Um, because um, in, in both your books, there's a great deal of research into the who voted what way. Yeah, so it's very important to stress here that the split was very much an arbitrary rupture. So political scientists constantly returned to, constantly returned to the Dáil debates uh, trying to find the, the, the origin DNA of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Now, as we know, it's well rehearsed. There's not a huge difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, but they have developed different political traditions since. Uh, they have, you know, uh, manifested at various points different socioeconomic positions. For instance, Fine Gael has traditionally been associated with, uh, in urban Ireland, the business vote, in rural Ireland, big farmers. Fianna Fáil, likewise, in urban Ireland, the workers' vote, uh, in, in the countryside, the, the small farmers' vote. But that was not apparent. It's important to stress that. That was not apparent on the 7th of January, uh, 1922. The people who voted one way or another were very much the same kind of people. They shared the same outlook. They shared the same um, ideology. So the women, yes, the women, um, six of them voted against the, the treaty, but they were the only kind of distinguishable block who went one way uh, instead of the other. Um, in every other sense, and I want to stress this again, especially in a socioeconomic sense, you have an almost even breakdown. A lot has been made as well about the influence of the IRB, which of course was the, the secret... The um, Irish Republican Brotherhood. Irish Republican Brotherhood, the secret Republican organisation that had been behind everything since 1916. Uh, a lot of historians have contended that uh, Michael Collins orchestrated an IRB campaign, used his influence, his big influence within the IRB, uh, to get the pro-treaty vote over the line. But when we actually look at the affiliations of the TDs, uh, 39 of them uh, who voted for the treaty were in the IRB, but 33 of them who voted against the, uh, the treaty were also in the IRB. So you don't have the IRB on one side more than the other either. One really interesting little little sidebar, which I think people will enjoy, is that a, a distinct majority of Dublin TDs, Dublin-born TDs, voted in favour of the treaty versus their, mm. their rural counterparts. And um, if you drill into the, um, the breakdown of IRA officers who are also TDs, uh, is it fair to say that the higher up the echelon of the IRA you get among the TDs, the more pro-treaty? From brigade level, it's almost unanimously against... Uh, divisional level, it's nearly a, nearly a split, and then GHQ is for it. Yes, that would be fair to say, but more so, um, you, you've got a Dublin, again, a Dublin rural breakdown um, here. So when we're looking at the IRA, I think the most important thing to, to bear in mind is the, uh, the geographical differentiation within the organisation. So um, General Headquarters and the Dublin Brigade were very closely tied. Uh, they would be on the pro-treaty side. Their, their big you know, opponent in that respect was the 1st Southern Division, uh, centred on Cork, where a disproportionate amount of the, the fighting had taken place. And they, they were out of the traps within days of the actual signing of the treaty? 
Yes, they were. They were out against it um, straight away. Although, just sorry to go off on a tangent now, but it's important to say, though, that even though they were out against it, they were on more of a defensive footing. They, there wasn't an appetite on the part of, say, Liam Lynch, um, who was the, the main figure within the, the first Southern Division, to, to go to war. His position was very much a moderate position. They rejected the treaty, but they had no appetite to go to war. And in this respect, and I think this is important to emphasise, um, people like Richard Mulcahy, Collins himself, they could have done more to conciliate the IRA, to conciliate, conciliate moderates like Liam Lynch. They were looking, Liam Lynch was looking for an IRA convention to be held in the Mansion House in March, uh, looking for a dialogue to start up again. And Collins talked the talk in terms of wanting to preserve unity within the Republican family. But um, he and Mulcahy worked against this uh, actually taking place. And as we know, uh, you know, from our more recent history, dialogue is the best antidote to violence. And the fact that that dialogue was shut down um, in in, in many ways uh, contributed to to the disaffection of the IRA and ultimately to the Civil War. But didn't um, Richard Mulcahy concede that they would allow the army to 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 continue to be named the Army of the Republic, that there was conciliation attempts at conciliation of the, the, the anti-treaty IRA. Not enough of it was tangible, though, I suppose. That was, that was the major issue. And again, you know, to make a kind of an apologia for, uh, for the likes of, of Richard Mulcahy, the, the IRA structure wasn't the, the cohesive superstructure that we, that we think it was. There, there, you, know, you had a fractured organization there uh, in the first instance. But if you look at the... Um, just to pick up on your point about the convention... Um, it has been said that uh, the um, the drift was towards um, elevating the executive, an executive of the IRA over the elected government. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't, like for example, Rory O'Connor's notorious remark when he was asked, um, "Are you talking about a military dictatorship here?" And he said, "Well, if that's the, if that's what you want to call it." So was it, wasn't there um, or was there uh, a, a drift towards regarding the IRA as the ultimate arbiter? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, though, if, if we take that line, Shane, we could maybe apply it retrospectively as well. I mean, when the uh, rebels went out in 1916, they were also going out on a limb and then they got retrospective endorsement from the Irish people. So Rory O'Connor could, um, could point to that as, as a very tangible precedent. The other thing to emphasize as well is that the 121 TDs who voted on the treaty were not actually uh, elected in the sense that there had been no polling they were elected unopposed. So it could be argued that the chamber itself was, was not democratic. How significant was that? that uh, the, 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 there, there wasn't the same mandate as there was in 1918? I don't think it's, it was significant, as significant at the time as we might think it was or, uh, because it's so alien to our uh, democratic traditions now. Um, and added to that, you had uh, TDs who represented more than one constituency, which has thankfully gone away, but was pretty normal uh, from the 19th century onwards. I, I think, to put myself in the, the, the time, I don't think people agonised over that position. I don't think they did. I think there was enough trust in uh, the representatives based on their previous work, their previous positions, that maybe it's it's... I'm not sure what you think, Michal, but I, I don't think people are overly um, worried that they hadn't voted 
recently or that they had No, I mean, the very fact say. that people aren't aware of that is, yeah. is indicative <laughs> of that, yeah. yeah. Now, the only reason I bring it up is simply, uh, you know, it, it can be advanced. If, if somebody is making the argument that the, the anti-treaty acts, the likes of Rory O'Connor, were undemocratic, then you can, of course, uh, apply the same critique to, to the doll. Mm-hmm. Um, just looking at the significance of the 22 election, now it is, we are moving further from our um, uh, area of focus, but what was fascinating was um, how, in the words of one commentator, the Irish electorate seemed to think that the job was done, that uh, independence was done, and they were voting for people other than Sinn Féin candidates. Yeah, and I mean, we, we have to give great credit to the people because, you know, fundamentally they were right. We had the substance of independence and um, as the decade would progress, the 1920s would go on, it would become very clear that uh, having dominion status meant that we effectively had full independence. Um, but at the same time, again, it, it's just important to, to make the point that this wasn't. It was, wouldn't have been clear to people at the time necessarily. This, this we can all say with with the benefit of hindsight. So, in other words, I think um, if I were there at the time, I would have been anti-treaty. Whereas now, I feel pro-treaty because of how things transpired, how things um, developed. Um, and also, what's important to say is, yes, the people were right in apprehending the substance of independence, um, but they were also just war-weary as well, exactly. um, and they potentially, this is obviously counterfactual now, but they potentially would have uh, accepted an even more limited form of independence if it meant that the fighting was to be brought to an end. Jennifer, how, how, how important was that um, weariness? I think it's if, very if important. Just, for example, um, the, I'm always struck by the, the, the spontaneous joy mm. that greeted the truce. Mm. The, the descriptions of um, IRA officers returning home, finding crowds of people who were just sitting out on the street. So they could, because they could. Mm. No curfew. Mm. Well, I think possibly that was a joy and also people might have believed they had routed the British and were celebrating that. But I'm a social historian primarily and I always go back to thinking about how the conditions were for ordinary people. And they were very, very difficult. Um, Emigration had stopped almost entirely. Um, So that was the normal safety valve for our very poor economy. And you had, uh, I I find the the difference between the rhetoric and the reality quite, quite difficult. So you have people urging um, men in, in, in the IRA to continue fighting at a time when their families are so poor, we can't even imagine the poverty. How can you really live like that for years and years and years? It's, I, I think it's an awful pity that the debate wasn't more expansive to think about the reality of people's lives and that labour and trade unions were you know, only marginally heard and weren't a significant force in the first uh, doll. And I also, our first uh, cabinet post-1922, uh, I also think it's a shame that uh, we didn't have proper opposition to hammer out some of the initial legislation. Uh, more more attention to equality and justice would have been my flavour, but certainly the rights of women were uh, very quickly ignored and suppressed, etc. Patriarchal society. Absolutely, yeah. I want to, I mean, I couldn't agree more with everything that Jennifer is saying. If that doll that voted on the treaty was unrepresentative, it wasn't in a political sense, it was in a socio-economic sense. So the majority of people within it were from what we might categorize as a lower middle class background. So they were, 
you know, they were, their experiences were, were quite far removed from the experiences of, of ordinary people um, on the ground. So They could afford to keep fighting, literally. Yes, or, or at least were, were better placed, mm. yeah. Well, um, wasn't there also, though, um, one of the things that struck me when I was researching the actual conflict, that uh, if you had a, a stake in society, if you had a business, mm. and you were known to be an IRA officer, is it Michael Kilroy in, in Mayo whose um, business was uh, him visited by the IRIC? And there's very striking photographs before and after the visit, after smoking ruins, a rural mm. business giving employment mm. uh, based on local resources, mm. gone. And so th- th- when you say they could afford to keep mm. fighting... Could it not be argued that the more you could afford to keep fighting, the more you had to lose? Uh, Perhaps, yeah. I'm thinking more of uh, the work of Peter Hart on the IRA, and he's looked at the structure. um, And they aren't from the the lowest, poorest classes. So um, in that way, you could commend them. They have something to lose. Um, They are not uh, without resources that... um, you could think, well, they have to preserve them. But at the same time, I think when you look at some of the rhetoric in the uh, post-1916 period coming from the volunteers, there is an urge, just fight, just fight, keep fighting. And I just don't think that uh, reflects the reality of some people's lives at the time. One of the things I wanted to pick up on with you, Jennifer, was um, your your observation about the there was no opposition. Mm. Was that not a classic feature of revolutionary movements? that yeah. the initial movement is, is a, a monolith and opposition is not mm. catered for in the immediate period. Yeah, I, I suppose it is. And another thing I'd add to that is that some of the more radical elements like Connolly, socialist, feminist, uh, they're not there um, to have these debates or tease out legislation. So they're not there to have that perspective. And that perspective on social justice is lost. Um, whether it's... I mean, you have models, scholars who talk about revolutions and counter-revolutions. That's very common in the discourse. I think we see that uh, very much. I just think it's a, it's a shame, it's a lack in our democracy that for the first 10 years, or certainly the first six or seven, we just didn't have a proper, properly functioning government and opposition. And, and there, the checks and balances part of, of government, wasn't there? Yeah, um, that's, that's a very important point. So... As time went on, the revolution got more conservative. Mm. Um, I mean, Kevin O'Higgins, I'm going to paraphrase him now, but he talks about we were the most conservative revolutionaries to ever put through a successful revolution. Of course, he would be a leading figure in, in the new Commonwealth government that would emerge from the, uh, from the Civil War. Uh, so what had happened, just yeah, to reiterate what, what Jennifer has said, that social dimension to the revolution that really was gone by the mm. time we get to the, the treaty vote. And thereafter, what you have is the vested interests in Irish society immediately grafting themselves to the mm. pro-treaty tradition. So there is an assumption, uh, I, I alluded to it earlier, to see the pro-treatyites as kind of the ultimate middle class, the, the bourgeoisie. They weren't. I mean, when the vote happened 100 years ago today, these people were not distinguishable from the people a- across the, the doll chamber. But as time went on, as the 1920s progressed, the, uh, the, the various kind of establishment interests in Irish society uh, hitched their wagon to Common and Wales uh, and what evolved into, into Fine Gael. Mm. Looking back on, the, on, as we're coming to the end of our discussion, um, why, why was the treaty so loved, unloved? Even the people supporting it didn't, didn't love it. 
Yeah, it's because it fell short of the aspiration. The aspiration was for the fully sovereign 32-county independent Irish Republic. And, it, you know, there's no getting away from the fact that it did not deliver that. But a hundred years on, I think it's important for us to see that it delivered the substance of that. The big thing, of course, that we you know, must, must condemn it with regard to is, is partition. But equally, we must make an allowance on, on, on that as well, because it didn't, you know, it didn't invent partition. Partition was obvi- already a, a reality. At most, it, it cemented it. And at the treaty negotiations, there mightn't have been much consideration of partition during the treaty debates, but during the treaty negotiations, Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins spent most of their time uh, talking about how to bring in uh, the unionists, uh, unionist community of the of the north into some kind of an independent Ireland, and they were they were really, I suppose, um, outsmarted in their endeavours by Lloyd George. He he eventually persuaded them that the Boundary Commission would give them what they wanted, that it would it would give them so much territory from Northern Ireland, Derry City, Tyrone, Fermanagh, South Amar, South uh, down the, the nationalist enclaves, that what would be left would be unviable and that there would have to be a united Ireland. The problem was the devil was in the absence of detail mm. and they didn't get the guarantees within the treaty uh, that, that this would actually happen and so it transpired that it didn't happen because the um, instrument that was uh, underpinned the Boundary Commission was very much skewed in favour of maintaining the status quo, maintaining the six-county uh, six partition that, uh, that, was, that was already in, in, in place. Um, but in, in terms of just you know, making allowance for the naivety of Collins and, and Griffith, it wasn't just them. I mean, you take somebody like Sean O'Mahony, who voted in favour of the treaty. He was the sole Sinn Féin TD who represented exclusively uh, a Northern Ireland constituency for Manor Tyrone, and he voted in favour of the treaty. And why did he vote in favour of the treaty. He was one of these TDs who over Christmas consulted his constituents um, in Fermanagh and Tyrone. He himself was from Thomastown in County Kilkenny, so it was particularly incumbent upon him to to consult his constituents. He did, and he couldn't find any, he claimed, that were uh, opposed to the treaty. So, um, you know, when we, when, we, when we critique the treaty as having left behind the North, again, we have to bear these factors in mind. And document two was also very poor on the North. Uh, the devil is not in the detail there either. And I meant to say earlier, I would say any unionist who looked at that would have just laughed at it because, of course, it wouldn't have, have flown. It was, there was no concession to them there. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our broadcast here. Um, can I thank my guests, Jennifer Redmond and Michal Afardik? And just to rem- um, a few people have contacted us. The books are The Treaty and Birth of a State, um, two very important books on uh, reflecting the latest thinking on the treaty and the aftermath. Uh, could I also call- thank my colleagues Michael McLaughlin and Kieran Cullen and the staff of the National Concert Hall here in Earlsford Terrace.